Hi, everyone. This is Hired. I'm your host, Cameron Mall. Mike Davidson is today's guest. Mike and I have known each other since about 2004 when he linked up a redesign of my site from his and sent a truckload of traffic to it. Of course, that was back when he and I both were writing a lot more than we have recently. But speaking of writing, that sets the stage for today's discussion because Mike is back in the blogging game. He recently redesigned his site. MikeIndustries.com is where you can find him. And he recently wrote about his three years in San Francisco as the VP of design at Twitter. So on today's show, we'll dive deeper into some of the things that he touched on in that article, which you can find linked up in the show notes. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cameron. It's great to uh, be here. So what prompted you to write that article? Well, you know, it was kind of a lot of stuff that had been bottled up inside of me for the last three years. Um, And I was... You know, actually a little worried because I couldn't figure out how I wanted to structure it. There was just so much to say. Uh, and I, at the end of the day, it just ended up being kind of a stream of consciousness. And I, my hope was that I could just, you know, put enough good stuff in there that people wouldn't even really remember how disorganized it was. <laughs> <laughs> and what's been the response so far? It's been really good. You know, whenever you kind of pour your heart into something, you have a, a fear that people will just kind of look at it and go, oh, well, yeah, there's another you know, person leaving San Francisco or, oh, there's another person in design. He's got something to say or, oh, that's too long. I don't want to read it. Um, I published the article first on my own blog. And I, as part of the redesign, I, I turned comments back on, which has been great. You know, and there's, there's all positive comments so far, no trolling at all. Uh, and it's just been kind of I guess echoing throughout throughout Twitter and throughout Facebook and throughout a, a bunch of, of other places now. So um, yeah, so far I'm I'm pretty happy with the reaction. It seems to be getting a lot of people talking. Hopefully, talking to their bosses, talking to their colleagues, and really even reconsidering you know whether they're happy or not at their current job. Yeah, well, a lot of that might have to do with the honesty of not just this piece, but other pieces that you've written as well. But maybe specific to a topic like the one that you, uh, well, the topics, plural, I should say, it's a retrospective of working in the Bay Area for three years, is is the difficulty of, of being honest when you're writing, is that a result of the atmosphere within the Bay Area for a piece like this? Or is it simply just a result of being tactful and empathetic as a writer? Uh, I think it's mainly the former. I think there's this sort of unspoken rule, and it's really throughout the business world in general, but you just see it a lot at Bay Area companies where you're really just not supposed to talk about anything negative. Um, you're not supposed to talk about things that may be happening that, that don't seem seem right to you or don't feel right to you. You're supposed to just kind of you know smile and and try to make things better, which in general is you know a good attitude. I mean, you want to always be positive. I, I try to always be positive. But, you know, I just didn't feel like it would be an honest, an honest piece if I, if I didn't mention, you know, a, a lot of positive and a lot of kind of negative uh, things that I noticed uh, over, the, over the last few years. I've known you, as I mentioned, for more than a decade and, and have read a lot of your stuff over the years. And I guess I should have guessed this given the caliber of companies that you've worked at. But I had no idea that you had that much to say about product management. I mean, where, where did that come from? Why, why would you dive into that as the very first thing in this particular piece, um, where it's a retrospective about design at, at Twitter? Yeah, well, I mean, as you could probably guess, I saw quite a range of it over there. Um, and I, you know, I worked with some of the best product managers I've ever met in my entire life, and I ever will have the, the, the good fortune to work with. Um, but then I also worked with 
with some people who I just, you know, honestly didn't feel like should even be product managers in the first place, let alone at a, uh, you know, a five-star public, extremely important company like Twitter. Um, and I just was not really used to kind of seeing that. Like I'm, I, I, I sort of, I guess with a designer, it's sort of a lot easier to tell right away how good of a designer somebody is. Cause you know, as a hiring manager, you look at their portfolio, you talk to them for an hour or two and figure out if they, if, if you think they'll be easy to work with, you, you get a feel for how they solve problems. You know, with an engineer, you do coding tests and you know, a bunch of other things. And I just think with design and engineering, it's so much easier to tell before you work with somebody how effective they're going to be or how qualified they are. And with PMs, it's just way more of a crapshoot. Um, you may get lucky and hire somebody amazing and you may get really unlucky and hire somebody who, uh, shouldn't be managing products and shouldn't be managing people. And so, you know, I just, I guess the reason I wrote about it is I saw the sort of both immensely positive effect it can have when you get somebody in there working with designers and researchers and engineers, who's just a fantastic PM and real, a real force multiplier on, on their team as well as the opposite effect where you've got great designers, great engineers, great researchers um, stuck with somebody who, who really has no business, um, you know, making product decisions. I want to ask you about diversity in the workplace. Uh, I know you have some thoughts about this, so maybe share your thoughts about diversity uh, in general. And, and if you're willing to share, tell us how you took Twitter from an 80-20 male to female ratio to 50-50 in less than a year. Yeah, um, you know, diversity isn't something that I've thought a lot about my entire career. And I would say, before I moved to the Bay Area, I wasn't really acutely aware of how big of a of, of a problem it is uh, in tech. Um, you know, when you aren't paying attention, and you kind of look around you, and you see a mix of men and women, and, and some white people, and, and some black people, and some Asian people, um, and some Latinos, you sort of may say falsely in your head, like, hey, I work in a diverse atmosphere because look at all these people that I see. But you're not really doing the math. You are you are just making a snap judgment based on the fact that you aren't surrounded by all white males. And there's a quote from Kathy Sierra. Uh, she did some research many, many years ago uh, that said, in order to feel like a tech conference is 50-50, what is the percentage of women that need to be there? And I think it was like 25. So as long as a tech conference is 75, 25, I'll have to double check on that number because it's been a while since I cited that, that stat. But it, you know, if a tech conference is 75, 25, or may, maybe it was 70, 30, it feels to male participants like a 50-50 atmosphere. And so when you start to really dig into to what things are like in tech, like the, the situation is pretty grim. And, uh, you know, when it really hit home for me was we had a series of kind of fireside chats that we did within the design studio at Twitter, um, where we had women on the team talk about their experience uh, of working in tech, not just at Twitter, but just in tech throughout their careers. And uh, one woman on the team said something that really just kind of made me set up and, 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 and listen, which was, she said, sometimes I go weeks without being in a meeting with another woman. And I thought about that and I was thinking to myself, wow, there's like thousands of women that work at Twitter. There are many, many women that work in our department. How is it that you can go weeks being the only woman 
in in the meetings that you're in. And then as she further explained it, it made a lot of sense. Most of the meetings she's in are dominated by engineers. There may be a meeting where it's, you know, one designer and nine engineers. And as soon as you start thinking about those sorts of um, dynamics, it becomes clear like, hey, it's not just about the overall number of people at Twitter, or it's not just about the overall number of women in in our department, but it's about what this designer's day-to-day workload look like. And for her and for many other women in our department, this is a really common thing. Another thing she said that was that was really interesting to me is she said, all it takes is to have one other woman in a meeting and she feels way more comfortable talking and she feels like she can speak her mind so much more easily when she's the only woman in the room. And, you know, this sort of you know makes sense when you hear somebody say it, but it's not something that you think about without hearing it directly from the voice of a woman. So um, anyway, that's kind of how we started out the process of really making our department a lot more diverse is really, we started with the stories. We started with um, what people felt like being a woman in tech. And, you know, and I say woman in tech and, I, and not woman, woman at Twitter, because I think that's a really important distinction. One of the reasons our effort was so successful is we didn't create like an us versus them atmosphere. And I think the, the women on our team were very, very smart to recognize the problems or the potential problems of creating that sort of atmosphere where, you know, you don't want a situation where like the women on the team feel like the men on the team are the, are, are the, are the source of the problem and the men on the team don't think that they're the problem. Uh, that kind of gets into a war that doesn't really need to happen. So we really made sure... Um, well, I say we, but I mean, the, the women on our team specifically made sure to keep the conversation at a very like high, broad, professional level so that nobody on the team felt threatened. Nobody nobody on the team felt like there were two sides. Um, and at the end of the day, everybody felt like we wanted to help improve the situation. Um, and so, you know, over the course of the next year, we started it, looking at our, our, our um, applicant screening process, our interview process. We looked at uh, the numbers behind how our team was comprised. And, and you know, we never set a goal of being 50-50. We just ended up that way, mainly by paying attention. I think that's the best approach. I mean, if you could define an approach from the people I've talked to is to have that be a natural extension uh, or incorporated into your company where, yes, you you focus on it, but that isn't necessarily the goal by itself. The goal is to have more women or, or more underrepresented parties participate and uh, find ways to make that a natural part of the company, the culture, the teams, and so forth. Absolutely. Uh, what, what's your take? Is, is San Francisco not as diverse as it could be otherwise? It's not as diverse as it could be otherwise. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, there's probably worse places, right? It's not, I don't, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's the least diverse place in the world. I think there's a, a lot of diversity there that's really, really good. But I think, you know, most of the problem or a lot of the problem, at least, comes from the fact that the way we hire is the way we've always hired in every industry, which is word of mouth. You know, when you look at the cascading effects that a system like that has, what ends up happening is, you know, if you start with a base of mainly white males, white males mainly know other white males, for better or for worse. Um, actually definitely for worse, Never mind. Um, so, uh, you know, what happens is let's say you've got a team of 10 people and, you know, eight of them are white males and, and those white males very innocently refer a, a representative group of their friends for any open positions. And so if you just you know run the averages, the number of people who are going to get hired are predominantly white male. And so, 
if you just let things go innocently in that direction, that's how you end up in a, a situation where we have you know a lot of white males hiring a lot of white males uh, who are all who are generally educated in the same colleges who were all given plenty of privilege to to be successful when they were when they were young um and you know that's another thing like as we talk about privilege like you know privilege is not something that most people ask for you know if you are if you are privileged it's probably because your parents you know did well for themselves and and saw to it that you you know went to a good school and saw to it that you always had books and a you know and a laptop these days and and you know you didn't necessarily ask for that but you have it and it gives you an advantage. And so I am really interested in the cases that come through our door uh, of people who have really taken a long journey uh, to get to where they're at. So yes, you're sitting in front of here applying for a job at Twitter. And yes, your portfolio looks great. And yes, you've got all these references. But where did you come from? Um, is your, are, you, are you coming from a family of designers who are all very well off and who set you up for life? Like, okay, that's fine. But that doesn't show me the sort of fighter you are. That doesn't show me um, that you're able to you know, fight through, through adversity, the sorts of things that you're going to have to deal with in the workplace. Did you, however, come from another country? Did you teach yourself design? Did you put yourself through college? Did you work minimum wage jobs like, like I did and like you probably did, Cameron, um, at one point in your life? Um, did you show that you can, that you can become who you are uh, you know, through hard work and, uh, and determination? Yeah, paperboy. That was my first job. Great. Every, <laughs> everybody should be a paperboy or a or a busser or bag groceries in a in a in a supermarket. Like it should almost be the law. Like you know how in in Israel everybody has to do uh, a military service. It's like the law, right? You have to do I think a year or two of military service. Like it should be the law that every 14, 15, 16 year old kid uh, should have to work a minimum wage job in the service industry to get a proper respect for you know for work and for people in in those sorts of industries. Twitter has this rule, and, and you mention it in the article, where engineering, product uh, design, those those teams, there's there's no promotion into management. If you're happy as an individual contributor, then there's a career career path for that. But if you're happy as a people manager, there's a career path for that. Uh, but there's no pay raise. It doesn't level you up within the system. First of all, by the way, I love this concept. And as you mentioned, it lets people do the kind of work that's most rewarding to them, most valuable to the company. I'm curious, is this the first time that you've encountered a, a, a rule like this at a company? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, and it's funny, I bet you there there are people at Twitter who don't know that rule. <laughs> um, uh, we made we made sure to talk about it quite often in, in our department, just because so, it's important not just to have the rule, but for people to know the rule. In fact, that's the most important part that people actually know uh, that this system exists. Because if they don't know, then they just assume, hey, the managers get paid more, and the managers have more prestige, and the managers are on a better track, and that's just not the case. Like, look, I mean, I <laughs> getting back into actual pixel pushing, redesigning my site and, and coding and, you know, getting back to the non-managerial aspects of work over the last few months really re reminded me um, that, hey, you know, management is not always as fulfilling uh, as doing the actual work itself. And so that's kind of the point of the rule is, is you have people who, who gravitate towards solving people problems and are, in fact, better at that. And that's valuable. But then you have other people who are who are actually just much better in the product itself, and so um, you don't want to create the system where people feel like they are sort of dead ended unless they decide they want to give up what they're best at, which is you know working on products. 
just so they can you know start having one-on-ones with their employees and and start managing salaries and all, all the stuff that you know none of us really wanted to do when we got into design so um i don't know actually how pervasive the rule is at twitter i know it's i know it's within engineering product and design i'm pretty sure it's not throughout the entire company but it, it may be um uh, but it's it's just had a great effect in terms of you know keeping really great uh, you know really really great designers and researchers and engineers um, working on what they do best. Again, I love the concept, and there are plenty of benefits from the sound of it. Was there any weirdness to it that would result? And I'm guessing here, but result from having say a people manager managing individual contributors, where both the manager and the contributor might have the same pay grade or might be considered equal. Um. You know, well, there's instances where it goes even beyond that, where, you know, an individual contributor will be making more uh, than a manager. And, you know, it's not something that we hide. I, th- I think it's something that, that you just have to be honest and upfront about. And we, d- we don't really want people who are, you know, who are, who are working, uh, you know, at the company for, for the money. We want to be able to, you know, pay people a, a fair amount, um, certainly as much as we possibly can. Um, and we just don't feel like, uh, you know, we just don't feel like managers are always, are always worth more than individual contributors. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. You know, I, I remember reading what you'd written and you mentioned that one of the things that you struggled most with in San Francisco was dealing with people who had no desire to balance happiness with visible output as if the two are mutually exclusive. What is the key then to making both of those things a priority? Um, I think to me, what it comes down to is look, really looking at behaviors over outcomes. I think there are a lot of people, especially in the Bay Area, who are very outcome focused. So let's just, you know, use a hypothetical project. Let's say you are, uh, you know, redesigning the onboarding flow for your product. Um, if you as a team are able to say, Hey, you know, we objectively increase the number of people who make it through the funnel uh, by 5% uh, by virtue of these things that we did over the last three to six months. Um, there are, it's very tempting to look at a stat like that that's easily me- uh, uh, measurable and say, well, everybody on the team did a fantastic job. Like the PM must have done a great job. The designers must have done a great job designing a great new flow. The engineers must have built it. So it was fast and reliable and worked. Um, And the researchers must have done a fantastic job of figuring out what was wrong. Um, And let's shower praise upon the team. Um, Or the reverse could happen. And you could spend three, six, nine months and like, you know, you might not get any sort of raise in in amount of people who make it through that flow. And then you could you could make the reverse assumption and say, well, you know, the people on that team are not very smart and and they don't have their their stuff together. And 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 that's why this thing failed. Um, It's easy to make snap judgments like that based on data because it's so readily available. But what you really want to do, if you can, is to judge the quality of the decision making in, in a given project. And that's a lot harder to do because you need to know how the team operates. You need to know why they made certain decisions at one point uh, uh, along the road or another. Uh, sometimes you can make a really high quality decision that ends up having a bad outcome. Um, you 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 could be faced with a decision that has a 90% chance of working and being fantastic. Uh, and then you look at it and, and you do it 
And lo and behold, the 10% come through, like something, something bad happens. And you knew you had a 10% chance of it not working and it didn't work. Um, but you shouldn't judge the team then and say like, well, the, hey, the thing didn't work. And so you, you guys did the wrong thing. You have to judge the quality of the decision. Um, I somehow managed in my post to avoid any reference to the Seattle Seahawks. Um, but this is a really great, uh, although painful point to bring that up. Um, the last play in the Super Bowl against the Patriots two years ago, uh, I was there, um, with Dick actually from Twitter and a few other people. And, you know, it was an amazing game. Everybody knows what happened on the last play. We didn't hand the ball to Marshawn Lynch. We threw it. Uh, the ball was intercepted. We lost the game. You know, I left that stadium thinking that was the worst call in the history of sports, as did the rest of the rest of the world for, the, for that matter. Um, months and months and months, people were talking about how bad of a call it was. How could we do that? Cost us the Super Bowl. And, you know, and I believed it. But if you look at the actual decision and you run the numbers on what we had done, or sorry, what we had, what had happened in the past when we had called that play and called other plays. It was the correct decision. Um, we've been at the one-yard line before, and we didn't score 100% of the time. Uh, we turned the ball over, actually, a couple times when we were on the one-yard line um, uh, trying, to run the, trying to run the ball. Uh, that, the, the, the play that we called was actually the highest percentage play that we possibly could have called in that situation, uh, but it didn't work out. There was like a, you know, a 1% or 2% chance that what happens you know, an interception at the goal line by a rookie undrafted DB would happen. And it happened. And so we can sit and call our coaching staff a bunch of idiots and say they did the wrong thing. Or we could recognize that, hey, these guys know what they're doing. They made a high quality decision. They were wrong. And that's sports. Making decisions in our industry isn't much different. Like rarely are you able to to, to design a product, to build a product um, with 100% certainty of how it's going to work out. But if you build in really good decision-making uh, really high quality decision making, you're going to be right more often than not. If the well-being of the team is just as important as visible output, would that justify missing a deadline intentionally for the sake of, you know, if, if the well-being of the team is at severe risk just for the sake of producing that visible output, does that justify making decisions that might be in the interest of the team as well as the product? Absolutely. Because you want stable teams. You want teams to to stick together. Like, you know, deadlines are great. Like I love deadlines. You have to set deadlines, but the world for the most part doesn't remember deadlines. The world remembers what you release. The world remembers if they enjoy what you release. And so slipping a deadline when you're, when, 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 when the the quality bar hasn't been met is generally um, an okay thing. in in my opinion, Um, in our industry, we don't, you don't launch things and then let them sit. You launch a 1.0, which you know has problems. Uh, and then you want to iterate to 1.1 as quickly as you can, and then 1.2, 1.3, and then 2.0, and then 3.0, and then 4.0. And the only way you're going to do that is if you have a team who is still happy to be working on what they're working on. Well, listen, Mike, it has been absolutely wonderful chatting with you. I really appreciate you making time to chat with us, and uh, we're looking forward to whatever comes next for you. Uh, my pleasure, Cameron. Thanks so much for having me on the show, and uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you uh, sometime soon. I'll bring some nice weather with me. Fantastic.